You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Hey, good morning. Good to see you all. I'm excited to jump back into another parable. Uh, Like we talked about last week, we kind of did like part one uh, of two. So this is part two. Um, and, uh, and again, um, I think we can kind of miss this part of it, but with the parables, um, remember, we're not just reading like virtuous stories, you know, we're not just reading these narratives that have this moralistic teaching at the end or anything like that. Like we're reading Jesus revealing this kingdom of God, a whole new value system. But instead of just showing up and saying, Hey, you're doing it all wrong. This is what you need to do instead. He's trying to engage minds and hearts. He's trying to put people in positions that they're not in. So a lot of times the stories are the reverse of what's actually happening so that he can get you to think about it, you know. So just remember that it's really easy with these stories to listen to them and then be like, oh, who am I in the story and this kind of thing. And again, it's not just about that. It's about realizing what is Jesus trying to reveal? What's the, what's the, the values that he's sharing with the kingdom of God here. So um, last week we looked at this part one, and there's this incredible interaction. If you can turn to a Luke chapter 14, uh, you can follow along. Um, incredible interaction between Jesus and some of the leaders, part of this kind of this very exclusive uh, elite group. Um, they're called the ruler of the Pharisees, which is made up of this place called the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin, there's kind of two main, main focuses of the temple leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, we can get into that later, but uh, Pharisees has Jesus, so he's kind of addressing more of the Pharisees. They're more of the theology side. Uh, the Sadducees are a little bit more on the political side, so we're not quite there. We actually see the Sadducees come in later when he gets more uh, enticing in the political system. Doesn't matter, nerd stuff. Um, but right now he's talking to the Pharisees, the rule of the Pharisees. He's before some very, very important individuals, um, and he hasn't been addressing the Pharisees directly. Remember last week we looked at where he actually addressed all the invited guests. Remember he, welcomed, he came into a great kind of party, this feast, and he actually talked about to, to all the invited guests first. Today he's going to focus directly on the Pharisees here. Um, and he concluded last week where he was kind of telling them, hey, when you get invited to a feast, here's kind of the conclusion of it, chapter 14, verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will will be exalted. That was kind of his main goal of last week. And this teaching does two things. First, it creates in people a hunger and intentionality to serve others, right? And have grace for others in their circumstances. It also, secondly, it humbles those who have puffed themselves up above the rest. And it kind of reverses what is important and who is important. And I feel like this is really important for us to see because this, pa- this parable was not written to 21st century American Christians, right? It wasn't written just to us. The Bible's not written always to us, but it's always for us, right? So we have to adapt it to our thing. But you think about like even early school age, right? For me growing up, it was like you kind of got put in certain camps, right? You were either like a jock, like a sports guy, or you were a skater, you know, or uh, you're an artist or like you're on the cheer squad or just you were just the guy that did the Rubik's Cube or like whatever you did, right? It was kind of the culture of where you fit in. 
So we get to this point where we're reading about this in the first century AD, and we can kind of understand, we can understand social structures, right? We can understand that there are some groups that raise themselves up that are more of like, they think of themselves as the elite because of power, wealth, position, whatever the case is. And then there's also the other side of the, of the spectrum of the poor and the weak and those who are kind of cast out, right? So we get it. We can understand what that means. Again, this is first century, so it looks a little different, but it's really kind of the same thing, right? The people who think they've made it, this is what they have done. The, prob the problem is they, they have made the making it in society synonymous with making it with God. That's what they have done. And this is the wrongness where, where you, can, you can be wealthy, you can have power, you can have position, but they included that saying that's because we are blessed by God. And that is what they have made synonymous, and that is what Jesus has come to address. So Jesus, he turns directly to those leaders, said, oh, okay, so you're here, you're important, you've made it, and it's because you think that God has blessed you. And we've looked how Jesus has, has turned again, and, and, and now he's to them. He's talked to the invited guests, now he's to them directly. Verse 12 of chapter 14, he's turning to his host, and he said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, I don't know about you, I'm naturally conflict avoidant. I don't love to just like stir up strife. <laughs> like as much as I can, I try to, uh, you know, be at peace with people. Um, walking into someone else's dinner party and blazingly saying, don't just invite your friends and all the people you like and are like because they'll just invite you back and you'll just be in this endless echo chamber of self-serving relationships. It sounds offensive <laughs> to me, right? It sounds like he's stirring up a little bit of trouble. And I'm constantly impressed by Jesus's non-contact avoidance. Uh, he's not trying to be troublesome, of course, but it's incredible how he just walks in. You can imagine this environment and he just goes for it. But remember, he's not telling us parable yet. This isn't part of the parable. This is kind of the context to it, right? He's just playing out, calling them narcissistic hosts. <laughs> That's just straight up what he's doing. And saying to the ever-important members of this Sanhedrin group, these Pharisees specifically, to invite and spend time with the unimportant. And that, that's not a normal message for them. So Jesus goes out and throws out this line, for you will be repaid at the resurrection excuse me, of the just. So one thing that's important, and to keep on harping, Rand and I just want to keep harping on this, is the, actually the importance of the Pharisees, right? They taught many, many good things. They believed in the written law of God. They believed in the oral tradition passed down all the way from Moses. And much of what the people knew about God was because of their protection and preservation of the law and the commandments. In fact, the Pharisees actually had a quite a robust teaching on the literal resurrection of the dead. This wasn't something Jesus just showed up and made up and we, they had to believe it. They actually believed this. They taught this. They believed that upon death, the soul would be reunited with the future body. And there would be this reward or punishment depended on how kind of your first life went, right? Kind of, kind of sounds a little karma-y, doesn't it, right? But remember, they're going off of 
the Old Testament teachings of blessings because of obedience or curses for disobedience. That's what they knew to be the way of God. So this wasn't just out of left field, right? They, they taught this kind of thing. But Jesus, he brings to mind what was being lost there, what constituted obedience and faith in God, right? There was this tall task of being holy because God is holy, but the issue is they, what they have turned holy into. And that's now the holy that they were saying is now getting farther away from the heart of God. Instead of being shepherds for the lost, instead of being shelter in the midst of storm, instead of being rest, they built walls to climb over. They built hoops to jump through. They've been and fostered an elitist attitude. When in fact, one of the starkest reminders in Leviticus of the wilderness generation and what the, what the wilderness generation was called to do, the leaders, when they encountered people that were strangers or people that were outsiders, this is what they were supposed to do. Leviticus 19.34, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. And here's the key, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Never forget, never, no, no matter what you built for yourself, no matter how high you think you've climbed, you were once lost in a land not your own. And the Lord rescued you and raised you up. So everything you have from the Lord, everything you can do should be for the Lord. Never forget where you came from. Now, should this mean they're never to invite what it, kind of what it literally says? Don't never invite your friends, never invite your family. That seems kind of harsh, Right. The idea is like, of course not, right? God gave us family and friends and areas of influence, but these shouldn't be at the exclusion of others. If that's all that you ever did, that's, and then said, oh, this is missional living, like that's where it gets a little bit hard and tricky. And there's this profound mystery of this like generous, being generous without reward, right? This is the way of God, that, that kind of self-sacrifice instead of self-seeking nature. There's encouragement and there's never a loss in God's way of generosity, for the reward actually comes from God, not from man. However, in our story, back to it, it doesn't seem like the people that are there at this dinner table kind of get it. Verse 15, when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat in bread in the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know about you when you read that. It's, this is just kind of my humor, but I just kind of imagine, and, and maybe you've had a friend like this, where like, if there's a worse time to say something and the worst thing to say, they'll say it, you know? And you're just like, oh, come on, like everyone be quiet. You can kind of see Carl like starting to get all, sorry if your name's Carl, but starting to get a little bit of whatever. And then finally he blurts it out. And you're like, come on, Carl. Like, why'd you, you know? It's just like one of those. But the cat's out of the bag, right? And Jesus is ready. Jesus has been talking to them very directly about how they've set themselves up above the rest. Right? And only invite those who are important, making themselves look better and probably getting a favor in return. Right? And there's this response and like, yeah, look at this. We're, we're crushing it. Everyone's blessed to eat in the kingdom of God, in this kingdom of God. This actually reveals their present state of mind. Now again, again, Pharisees believed and taught really good theology. They taught and believed in this eschatological feast in God's kingdom. This is what the Messiah was going to bring, the people together, and God would have this feast with them. They actually taught this. Isaiah 25 is something that was in their teaching, in their synagogues, in their schools. Isaiah 25, 6, listen to this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, 
a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. But it doesn't stop there. This is the point of it. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. That's incredible. What a vision, right? What an incredible vision. They, they knew this. They were looking forward to this. They had no problem with this. Even in our Bibles, if you go, you can go on your own time, read Revelation 19. It's called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. There's this great gathering of God's people with him, this great feast. The Pharisees, they want this. They teach this. This is good theology. They don't discount this will happen, but what they do not believe is that this Jesus right in front of them, that this is the Messiah, that this is the one to bring that thing they want so badly. But now, this is when Jesus, the King of the kingdom of God, the Lord of lords, the hosts of hosts, the real Messiah, tells them a story of what's actually happening. And this is our parable today. Luke 14, 16. But he said to them, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field. I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. The other said, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife. Therefore, I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So we'll take a few minutes, let's break this down and see the brilliance of what Jesus just did there. 16 and 17, a man, but he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who have been invited, come for everything is now ready. Okay, so that's pretty simple. Jesus is telling a story and saying, there's a man, obviously a wealthy man, obviously an important man, gave this great feast and invited many and it's ready for those invited. Then verse 18, but they all like began to make excuses. And if you think about the excuses, they're terrible. <laughs> They're terrible excuses. Who buys a field without seeing it? Okay, likewise, who buys oxen without checking out their health or what they can do or if they're even standing, right? And the last one is just this kind of get out of jail free card that you can get when you have married or you have kids where you're like, sorry, I'm just working on a healthy marriage, Dave. I can't come to your party or whatever, you know. You just, how do you say no to that? But these were the invited ones, the ones who the banquet was originally designed for but when the time came, they decided to reject the banquet for other ventures, for other aspirations. You know, this is my own thoughts, but like one can almost categorize the excuses here. Fields could kind of be like home aspirations, where you're at, where you live, right? Whatever you've built for yourself, future goals, hopes, right? Oxen can kind of be this work aspirations, better tools, better business, better profit, right? Marriage is kind of this personal life aspirations, home life, growing families, etc., right? You can kind of see these categories here, whether they are or not. 
And in the story, the ones invited couldn't reconcile the things they wanted and attending this guy's great feast. They felt like they had to choose one or the other, and they chose the other. So what should this man do who gave the feast? He's not just going to throw it all out, right? In fact, instead of being sad, he actually gets mad at those who rejected him. So he says, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. So streets and lanes in this kind of scenario that they would have understood are are all the common places, not the special places, not the high places, but the common places and the places in between the common places where the outcasts, the unwelcome, could kind of hide in the shadows and be set apart. And he did that, and there was still so much room. The hole that these original guests left in their absence was easily filled, and there's even more room. But instead of a second invitation to those originally invited, what does he say? Verse 23, And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. Again, in their context with this story, this is even further outside the city, deeper into the parts of the city that are unknown and unwanted. And as a final word, the host says, verse 24, For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Right? Not only did they not show up, but the invitation was actually rescinded. So think about this, okay? If you're, if you're checked out, come back to me. Right, let's land the plane a little bit. Remember, Jesus told this story to men who believed they are the host. Okay, he told this story to men who believe they are the host. They believe they have made it. They believe they will be welcomed into the kingdom of God with open arms, probably, in fact, that they themselves are ushering in this great kingdom. But Jesus is telling a different story. Jesus is telling a story where they are not the host in this story. This parable really should be titled The Great Heavenly Banquet, right? God is the host in the parable. God is the host. In his awesome goodness and eternal generosity, he has lavishly prepared the table for his people. And his great desire as a good father is for his house to be filled. But the ones who were invited, the ones who God has blessed to lead the people sought other aspirations. They're full of wanting their life, their work, their personal righteousness to be great, dismissing those who they could be helping. So although they have rejected God's banquet, God has opened his table now to all who would receive the invitation. This is the insider and the outsider. In their day, this would have translated to the Jew and to the Gentile, right? This parable is such an affront to the religious leaders, especially the ones who are hardening their hearts toward Jesus here. They think they've made it and are ushering in the kingdom of God through their greatness. But Jesus shows up and not only says they've rejected God, but that if they continue, they might not even partake in the great blessed banquet. See, they've chosen their own little kingdoms instead of the true kingdom of God. And this section is really closely linked to a teaching Jesus gave just one chapter earlier, and it is incredibly stark. You've probably heard this before. Luke chapter 13, verse 24. Jesus taught those who would follow him and be saved to strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you came from. 
Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And the people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. So powerful, especially coupled with our teaching today, right? The picture of the supposed knowledge about God, but no relationship with him. But then when they think they've made it, instead having to look at what they long for so badly to be among the saints, to be among the fathers of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to just sit with them, to hear their stories, to be in their presence and the prophets, but to not be able to enter. Instead, people from all over, everywhere else, are there reclining, facing the reality that they've missed the boat and got it all wrong ending with a similar teaching as last week that those who think they are first will actually be last and the last first. This is all leading Jesus' followers to question them, well, what are we supposed to hold on to? What are our dreams and what, who, who's with us? And Jesus wants it solely to be in God. He's going to get even more personal next week. Uh, Randall's going to, uh, to bring the cost of this kind of discipleship and what that looks like. And it's stark, but here's where it should leave us today. Remember, this is a parable teaching. Jesus' way of showing a whole new value system. This is the way of God, not the way of man. So it's okay to dissect these narratives, but we shouldn't just get all of our theology from these stories. So you can easily read these parables and think, oh man, I've only got one chance. And if I get it wrong, I'm locked out forever. Right? You can easily read this parable and think, wow, I, if I think I'm following God, but then I get to the end and realize I'm not, then it's all for nothing. How do I know if I'm doing it right? It's easy to think that, right? But remember, just take a step back. Remember, this is a what does God value kind of teaching, not how do we know we're saved kind of teaching, right? Jesus ties it into their theology using the banquet of the Messiah as a very understandable language something they knew well, something they thought they had nailed down, just like he's talking to farmers about planting seeds, just like his disciples on just how to pray, or people who are worried about the future, how to stop and to trust God. It's also easy for us to read these stories of the disciples or the Pharisees and think, guys, how could you miss the truth? Right? It's easy for us to read these Pharisees and think, come on, why can't you guys get this? But the hard reality for all of us is we are more like the disciples and the Pharisees than we'd like to admit, right? We all have aspirations, right? We all have ways within us that we struggle to give up or to trust God in. And if we're honest, a lot of us are waiting for that spiritual kick in the pants, right? Like that first kind of trumpet blast to tell you, God's coming, okay, get your stuff together so you can make it, right? The reality is, guys, that God already gave the kick. His kick was Jesus and the cross, his invitation is the Holy Spirit. It's here. The banquet is set. The invitations have been sent out to the ends of the earth. So the question for all of us today are what are the excuses we believe we are keeping us from full surrender to God? What are we waiting for? See, some of us are actually kind of like the Pharisees in here, right? Using excuses, waiting for a better time, thinking we've already made it. 
And there's a, there's a practical teaching here. I remember in the beginning, Jesus told them, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. And feast obviously isn't just about food, right? It means make your life intentionally a generous offering to those around you. Pour yourself out then. But a lot of us in here, we feel like the outsider. We didn't grow up in this faith. We were completely lost and we knew it, but we were found and invited to the table and we're just scared. We have this imposter syndrome like we don't belong. But hear this, the king of the kingdom has deemed you worthy. He has designed his table with a spot perfectly for you because when you surrender to him, he becomes your representation at the table. He is the reason and basis for why we can be there. And the guarantee of our salvation, it's not in our own righteousness. It's not in how good you avoid sin last week, right? It's the Holy Spirit. It's God's Spirit dwelling in and with his people. So it's by grace and grace alone that no matter where you're at today, we can come to the table. We can sit as the church, a gathered community dedicated to the Lord in awe and worship together, encouraging one another in our surrender to Jesus as Lord and being made new from the inside out through God's Holy Spirit. In our story today, the Pharisees, they were missing the whole point, right? God gave the banquet. God has made this available to all people and they're keeping it for themselves. So the grace and the beauty of today is that God's grace is available to all people. No one should hinder. No one should keep that exclusive, right? It is a joy that we get to share in that together. And when we respond to that, if we believe that, when we respond and surrender to that, when we sing and when we pray today, we're speaking this language of heaven. We're singing praises to Jesus. We're praying to one another in communion. When we give of our earthly riches, right, we're offering our trust that he is going to provide for this community through the generosity of his people. And when we come to the table of communion, we're recognizing we're saved not by works, but by the grace of Jesus Christ alone. Amen? All right, let's worship our good King today and live in the reality of his wonderful grace.